I never really liked Kevin Spacey's face. He just always had this like look to him. I don't know, like like he just sucked on a sour butthole. <laughs> sour butthole. I don't know. He just has this look. He just has this look to him where I just it could have been something sour it. or a butthole, but you went with both. Yeah, I don't know. I just he's just got this look on his face all the time. Like even before all the stuff came out, I was just like, I don't like this guy. Like he may be a good actor, but there's something about his face where he had this like he has the face of the dude who came in my tea when I was drinking it during funny games. Yeah. Just super <laughs> just, smug. Yeah, just got this like smug, squinty eyed. I don't know. Fuck him. <laughs> <laughs> well yeah, fuck, fuck him. Fuck him even before all the cancellations. The rightful cancellations. Honestly, fuck him too for for like me having to for causing the conversations and the t- discussions that I have where it's like trying to defend like films that he have he has been in and been just like don't, I don't just don't, en- go, don't, don't, like, just engage, don't engage with people yeah. don't engage no, 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 with no, people. I'm just saying like that's his fault too though. Like, it's but like, like you should know not guy. to engage with people who operate on that wavelength where it's like if an artist does anything bad, then it invalidates all their art. Yeah. That's a fucking absurd statement and like position to take. In my, it's different because they they still revere their celebrities and look past their transgressions. Yeah. Oh, dude! If somebody they didn't like ended up getting canceled when they were thirty, they'd be like, "Well, there's still value to that." It's, yeah, like I don't know. It's it's just weird to how people. It's weird to like define people in the groups that you meet that are like oh you guys are cool with this person but you're not cool with this person like for instance well, like being Chris cool Brown. with a person is much different than like ad- acknowledging that they made something of value hold on hold on you know? I, I really want to hear whatever point alex has created on chris brown go for it I, who's chris no. brown chris brown is an r&b artist who was mm-hmm. dating rihanna that beat the shit out of rihanna like over and oh. over again so okay. here we go let's uh I want to hear this defense. But it has yet, like, he's not, like, necessarily been canceled. Like, he still does concerts. Oh, yeah. People still love him. Like, hordes of, like, young pre-teenagers, like, men and women and everyone in between, they, like, love Chris Brown still. And they will come up with any explanation, right? But, like, I talk about a film... And that has an ensemble cast that just so happens to include Kevin Spacey in it. And it's all of a sudden I get into this like thing where it's like, oh, so you support, you know, what he did. I'm like, no. Like, I thought Benicio Del Toro and Danny Baldwin were great in The Usual Suspects as well. Like, I, I, I don't know. It's just... It's, it's just got great direction and a great story. There's two points here that you're making. One is... Um, to cancel somebody wholesale, just completely from the ground up, provides no opportunity to learn. Because then you're just like, I have now just written off this person and there's nothing to gain or to learn from their mistakes or their work. Which is one way, it's just unbelievably stupid. But then the second one is that I firmly believe in the modern times, like 
canceling people who are dead is like the dumbest, most smooth brain shit I've ever seen in my life. So I'm not even going to really go into that. Like trying to cancel John Wayne. It's like, please, just just go put your head underwater. I just want to say that you cancel yourself as, a, as an artist. People can say, like, I'm not going to go to your shows. And you can get dropped and fired by your managers. Like Chris D'Elia. Like he canceled himself. He didn't like respond to any of allegations against him. He just like got fired and silent and everyone was like, all right, well must be true. (laughs) But there are a lot of people out there who have done like, uh, Brian Callen. He, uh, you know, he got a quote unquote canceled. He was like, no, fuck that. I'm still going to go do shows and have my own podcast. And then it just went away because there was actually no substantive evidence pointing to it, but it's the silence and the, and apprehension that, helps decide the public's opinion for you the silent complicity yeah and so it's like so many artists if they just didn't pay attention to whatever bullshit people were trying to cancel them for and just kept being artists it just wouldn't work because it's like unless like they've done something actually heinous which in the realm of kevin spacey i feel like exactly like that's actually heinous shit exactly like, there's that, that guy. we're not defending kevin spacey's actions by the way on this no, podcast we're not. at we're all, all. guys a piece Fuck of garbage we're just talking abstractly <laughs> about the concept of cancellation yeah and there's just a lot of people out there who've lost careers like i'm a huge louis ck fan is what yeah. he did really fucking inappropriate yes unbelievably yeah. But I'm still going to watch his specials and everything because I love his art and his music. I mean, his music, his art, and his shows, but... His R&B albums. Yeah, exactly. The, the famous Louis <laughs> C.K. R&B records. Yeah. He, felt, he was like, well, the spot is left by R. Kelly, so I might as well yeah. jump in there. He and Drake got together. Oh, God. Uh, I mean, I, mean I, don't, I don't know. Louis C.K. is not really into, like, underage people, so I don't think he'd go for Drake. Boom! Shots fired. My favorite one is people getting on Lovecraft for being a racist. Oh, and like, yeah. And it's like, well, dude was writing in 1899. So uh, let's think about that for one fucking second, okay? Like, was he racist? Yeah. Was everyone else? Yeah. I does, mean, it ble- does it bleed into his stories? A little bit. A couple times there are some pretty, like, pretty well, the questionable of, The name moments. of his cat is pretty questionable. The name of his cat is very questionable. I'm not going to repeat it. But like overall that's about 0.2% of Lovecraft and the rest of it is phenomenal. But people who so say if you that wanna, if you want to cancel someone <laughs> for being racist in 1900 who was an artist then I guess go ahead but I'm not going to listen to you. <laughs> yeah. Well, people say that and it's like, all right, whatever. Like obviously you just heard that somewhere. You actually never read a Lovecraft story and then it's two a, it's a popular thing to say yes, now. Yes, and 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 two is like the, I guess there could be a counter argument to be the devil's advocate of like you know Sir Arthur Conan Doyle wrote in the exact same period, and while there are undertones of like racial tensions, like he calls the kids street Arabs because like a lot of that during that time a lot of the homeless children were Arabic children, and Jesus. So you can, so there's a little bit of that, but <laughs> it's not nearly as like. Ugh kind of glaring as sometimes Lovecraft can be with his very like rudimentary, like dark is good or dark is bad. Light is good and all that, but whatever, like who cares? It's just, yeah. Enjoy the fucking art. Stop enjoy the beautiful cosmic horror that changed the face of horror and value that. Like Lovecraft is one of the only artists uh, and writers that I've read where I've audibly gone like, Oh man, what a line. 
like in the middle of reading it. Yeah. He's like, a fantastic writer, fantastic ideas. I mean, speaking of uh, someone who couldn't, you know, reckon between the artist and the person, we have our friend Salieri. Oh, I know. We could start talking Wait, about. I want to. I want to say. I want to say something first before <laughs> we jump into Amadeus. Another thing, I just had to. I'd had to tell someone about this because okay. it's like, it's it's very innocuous, but for some reason it sent my brain spinning. I saw the most fucking absurd thing yesterday. I was walking around, and I looked at this lawn, and on the lawn was a toy lawnmower. And I started thinking about this toy lawnmower. I was like, of all the things in invention and creation to make a toy out of, you make a fucking lawnmower. It's like prescribing mediocrity from the off. Like, there are so many things you could make into a toy. Get him one of those guitars that plays little pre-recorded notes, like something with a little imagination. <laughs> you are definitely not going to have children. <laughs> you can even in life. get creative with a fucking hula hoop. But no, the kid gets a lawnmower. What do you do with that? Because a child like, only wants to You pretend to father. mow grass. You're like, no. gee, thanks, Pa, you dumb bastard. You that really gets, my, really gets my creative are juices you gonna flowing. Are sh- you shut up so I can explain it? I can just imagine the grass getting shorter as I walk around in a circle. Oh, my God. All right. I'm not even going to try. It's like the kitchen. It's the though, joke. You know? The, they oh give I get people, it. I like, get it. Kid wants to be like dad. I just like. They like construction. It was just funny to me. It's just, I just love that you've prescribed everyone who mows their lawn as mediocre. <laughs> no, it's just like. <laughs> it's just like a toy lawnmower. It's like of all the You see Jesse things. driving by people's like in suburbia and like some dude's mowing his lawn. He just looks over like a Morton Joe and he's just like mediocre. No, dude, I mean, I mow the lawn. It's something that has to get done, but it's like I wouldn't buy a toy for a child so they could pretend to mow lawn. <laughs> I definitely you get your get point. You got to get him ready for chores, man. I definitely uh, get You gotta get them excited free. to take that. There will that, be there will be enough chores in their lives without like labor. having them imagine doing them. I think they're just getting them ready to take that job off dad's hands soon. <laughs> just like, all right, let's maybe start that's now. it. I got. I now. could. I could get. I could get behind that. You're like, are you excited, Johnny? You're gonna be mowing the lawn soon. He's like, yay, and you're like, yeah, yay. <laughs> <laughs> Just trolling oh the shit out God, of them, so like oh, it's it's so much fun, Johnny. Such, I such promise. A stupid segue. <laughs> oh my God. Anyway. Oh my God, <laughs> Alex, can you please do that intro again? Because it was really nice. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, make it about <laughs> lawnmowers somehow. <laughs> you could just repeat the last. Speaking of a person who cannot reckon between person and artist, we have our friend Salieri. Exactly. Yep. So, Jesse, you want to start us off? Salieri. Yes, today we're talking about Amadeus, 1984 film by the director Milos Forman. Milos? Milos? I'm going to go with Milos. Milos. I'm not exactly sure. Milos. 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 (laughs) This movie won all the the Oscars, basically. Yeah. Uh, Yes, (laughs) seriously. Yeah. All the awards. It's about about Mozart and his... uh, Well, actually, I'm going to let Jeff describe this one because, Jeff, this is your choice. Yeah. And uh, yeah, tell us about Amadeus. I'd love to. So I first saw Amadeus in classical music appreciation class. Um, My teacher was using it as an example of particular mediums in the romantic and classical era. And so she was giving us clips of this movie. And it was funny because as she kept giving clips of the movie, she kept letting the clips go a little longer because she really loved the movie. And like eventually we just all kind of like 
through like four or five classes, just watched the whole movie. And I just really fell in love with it. I fell in love with this clear, clear example of an unreliable narrator, which I really think is an important thing to take when you start thinking about this movie and, and the story it's telling, because this movie is not accurate to history. No, it's a comedy. Yeah, it's a comedy. It's a dark comedy sometimes, sometimes very light. Would you call it a dramedy? Yeah, I would probably say it could be called a dramedy. I mean, I hate when merging words like that, but yes, I could say we could call it such. (laughs) But it basically uh, talks, it's from the perspective of Antonio Soleri, and he is the um, court composer of Joseph II, Holy Emperor of Rome, who who resided in Germany, or in Vienna at the time, excuse me, sorry. And... um, (laughs) So Salieri is the court composer at this time. Opera is dominated by the Italians uh, for obvious reasons because it's the best. And um, so says it's the about, Italian <laughs> as Salieri. It's it's told from his perspective of encountering and interacting with a young Mozart. And this movie is really just about ego. It's about uh, self assurance being recognized and and acknowledged for your talent and and I'm then also accepting what level your actual talent it is. I mean, the whole movie is kind of this distaste. Salieri has this distaste for Mozart because Salieri has given so much of his life. He has remained chaste. He has promised God that he will serve God in every way if he can just make Salieri the voice of God's music as a composer. And then all of a sudden, here comes this young, vulgar, childish, silly German boy who is a miles, I mean, in, in a different category entirely of composer. And Salieri can't accept this. He can't accept that this person who is a philanderer and a drinker and all this can be given the voice of God when he, someone who's remained chaste and donated his time and money, isn't. And so it's his tenuous grasp on this idea and his final abandonment of God and essentially not directly murdering Mozart, but working him and twisting things behind the scenes to cripple Mozart's life, make sure he's in debt and overworked and leading eventually to his death as as it's told in the story, not in real life. Yeah, it's a weird kind of revenge story almost. And it's, I don't know, to me, and I didn't remember this movie at all. I, I might as well have never seen it. I think I probably saw it when I was 15. I remembered nothing. So it was really interesting seeing it again. To me, it was mostly like a cautionary tale about jealousy and letting, like, wanting somebody to fail so hard that it consumes you. And what does that leave you with at the end? It doesn't really leave you with anything. It's just hollow and empty and gnarly and gross and spiteful to just like inhabit this this poison within you to just have it completely consume you. And it's like if Salieri had sought Mozart's friendship instead or just recognized his place, like what his talents were and came at it with a viewpoint of love, like it could have been a completely different story. Obviously, that's we're making a movie here, mm-hmm. but um, so I understand why it is what it is. But I don't know. It it seemed like a cautionary tale in that sense to me. So I've seen this movie several times, um, from when I was a young kid, all the way up until now. It's like a 
It's kind of like a Christmas movie between my mother and I. Uh, oh, wow, that's nice. I actually like yeah. that. Yeah, uh, I think it's really sweet. I think this is honestly one of the greatest movies ever made. I I love wow. this movie. Yeah. Nice. I would easily I put it in at least my top ten, top five. I maybe it like is definitely pushing. It's on the cusp of that. I think this movie is amazing. Not only, I think you guys were hitting like a good point with the genre of the movie, but for me, it's always kind of like a, it's like historical folklore in my opinion, because it's, you know, you have the people who will always be like, Oh, well, you know, them. this didn't actually happen. Blah, 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 blah. It's like, that's not what the movie's about. It's about like a dramatic retelling of this legendary life of music and the Salieri aspect, I think is, I, I, I don't know. It, it makes it, a story that anyone can enjoy and it makes it supremely entertaining. I think that this movie is good for everyone. Like even if you don't like classical music, right? You don't have to be a lover of classical music to love this movie because like you guys said, there's elements of revenge and bitterness and things like that. But I have a theory actually that his folly starts a little earlier Salieri's. And that is when he asks God to be the instrument for God, he's messing up right there because he's saying to God, if you make me a famous composer, I will be like so faithful. I will be the best little Catholic boy, you know, and that's where he messes up because it should just be in the tenets of his religion. You know, it's like, no, you submit to God already. Like you have already claimed faith in him by being Catholic. So, yeah, he's not doing his best Job impression here. Exactly, right? <laughs> he's like, if you give me this, he's like wheeling and dealing with God. And it's like, I'm not saying that the story is a religious one, like always go to church and shit like that. What I'm saying is like, don't ask too much of the universe and expect it, you know, when you don't actually try to emulate or exude positivity in your life. <laughs> right. I will only... I will only be thankful if I'm given everything exactly. I want. <laughs> you know, and it's like, yeah, you're like it doesn't really work like that way, man. <laughs> yeah, I know, and it's like it's funny because the prayer starts off very benign. Uh-huh. It's like, God, will you please just like I want to I want to speak your music. I want to I want your voice through my music. It's like, oh, that's sweet. Yeah, exactly. And then he's like, and then I want to be like famous, yeah. and legendary, <laughs> and no one will ever forget me, and your word and mine will be immortalized exactly. through music. And it's like, all right, bro. Yeah, like the list is getting a little long. <laughs> Exactly. And it's that's like, why I do this podcast. I want God to speak <laughs> through me on the uh, topic of movie opinions, <laughs> contentious movie opinions. And like, you know, obviously some historical context is needed on certain aspects, but really you don't go into this movie expecting like the true story of Mozart. This isn't a biopic of Mozart's life. This yeah. is no uh, a, a tale that's spun and woven by somebody who genuinely wants to do someone else harm sheerly out of ego and jealousy and actually and just like really it's self-hatred like Mm -hmm. salieri hates the fact that he is mediocre Mm -hmm. at best he can't handle it he can't accept it he can't accept that he's not the best and that he's not the best in comparison to somebody like mozart one must accept the fact (laughs) yep 
Yep, it's uh, yep, that's the the best ending right there because it just really like just solidified his entire like viewpoint. But I mean, we can talk about just like there's so much to talk about in this movie. I want to talk about music. Yeah, you talked please. about you talked about how this is like even if you don't like classical music, you can still really enjoy this. But this movie makes you love classical music because everyone, especially if you like music already, because everyone is so into it and the the way that they the way that their bodies and their language react to the classical music in the film is fantastic and not only that but the way that the movie mixes diegetic and non-diegetic sound in a sense is fantastic it's not like a soundtrack will suddenly be being played by somebody but the way that they will be imagining the music and the music will be playing for the audience and it's like a really cool way of doing it and especially for the three of us we're all music lovers and we all play instruments and so i know that there's like a deep love of music in the three of us especially and it was just it was just so cool to see and a side note as well on top of that the actors learned how to play all of these things and there was like I'm sure you guys saw this too in the notes. There's like a a scientific study done-ish by like these composers who looked at every frame of the movie and every note that you see people play is actually being played. Wow. So there's no there's no bullshittery going on there. There's no fake playing, which I think is awesome. Wow. That is, that is so cool. fucking impressive. I mean, yes, this movie is um is it's weird it's so it's such a strange film it's such a strange piece of art because it takes the music so seriously and to the point where you're getting these long segments they don't cut corners with the opera scenes like they give you huge chunks of Don Giovanni and all these amazing operas and with full orchestras and full singers and they they hired beautiful opera singers to do the the actual recording of these operas and and it's just entrancing it's absolutely entrancing when you're watching the performances like just regardless of the plot of the movie or what's going on or where we've left off in Mozart's life like it's like almost this little aside in the movie where you're like oh I get to like just sit here and watch Tom Hulse like really put his heart into Mozart's like conducting like when Mozart's conducting you just feel that energy and that that pull and that intensity and I don't know it's just it's so the music is so miraculously perfected the movie is in love with music and it's a it's it's like a monument to Mozart it's interesting because equally in the sense that it's a deviation from Mozart's life like it is just like a tale based on a thing it's not the real Mozart but um the way that it treats the music and the compositions and the way that it luxuriates in it is oh man I almost said it I'm gonna say it anyway it's a love letter it's a love letter because it is it's an absolute love letter to to classical music and Mozart and Salieri. It's also in a sense. to the genre itself, the idea of the time of like putting on operas live. Like theater and going to see a dramatic performance is much different than seeing it on screen. But this movie does a very good job of like blowing that world up for you. And like it's a 
production. When you said monument, it's it's like a monumental production. Some of the sets are just populated with extras that are so varied they're, they're and so, so like, hilariously lavish. Yeah, exactly. It's very opulent. And I wanted to, I'm so happy you brought that up, Alex, because I actually really wanted to talk about that. And like when you're going through the opening credits of the movie, you see typical movie credits, director, producer, writer, but then you start to see things that are so unique to a movie like this, like stage designer mm-hmm. and, um, and prop production designer. Like you start to see credits that you would only see in plays and theater. And the fact that they didn't just like try to just gloss over that. Like, yeah, yeah, we'll just have like prop department set up some sets and it'll look kind of like... Well, they they actually had very few sets. There are only like a couple. Most of them were real locations. I'm not talking about the sets, like like as far as a location. I'm talking about like the actual, like when you're looking in theater scenes, the props, the the set that is on the theater is right. is made by actual theater technicians not oh, gotcha. not like a a props department in a in a hollywood industry it's made by a theater company who like does this and that's why they all look beautiful and they move the horse and when the the guy uh, the, when the the dead commander and don giovanni comes through the wall in in this beautiful outfit like all of that was designed by people whose life work it is to do this mm-hmm. not by a hollywood prop department and i really think that gives the life the pulse of the movie authenticity i think is a is a good word for it it feels yeah. very authentic like i also read that they used only natural lighting to light this film. Mm-hmm. They didn't use like, you know, actual bulb lights in any that capacity. Makes so much sense. To light anything. Anything at all. Which is crazy. Yeah, I mean it kind of does make sense. I I mean, in the theater scenes, I believe it. In like the open light scenes in, in Mozart's house, I'm like, that's very surprising because it's so well lit. This movie is yeah. well lit. <laughs> like they had to do things like like put certain types of paper over certain windows in order to achieve the lighting of the scene, but they didn't want artificial lighting, which is like props to the director, man, because, I mean, I don't know what it would have looked like with bulb lighting, but it looks fantastic, oh, and yeah. it feels it feels authentic. I'll keep going back to that word of authenticity. You can tell like when he's on the billiards table and he's rolling the ball around in his house. The lighting is very natural. This movie, when you say lit well, Jeff, you don't mean that it's like lit brightly, right? It's no, I mean, you know, I mean like executed for, well. Exactly, that's what I mean. Is for the fact that this is all natural lighting. When you when I when someone tells me, oh, the movie's all natural lighting, I go, oh, I can see that. But in this movie, this movie is lit perfectly. So it's like that blows me away. That fact. Yeah, you can tell. There's no point where I'm like, oh, the light's a little subdued here, or it could be a bit brighter here. Like, no, it's just perfect. The shots back onto the audience during Mozart's performances and everything, like you can tell that, yeah, there's lots of light in the room, but it's like candlelight, right? It's like this is how it would be illuminated in this time. This is what it would look like. It would be kind of like dimly orange, right? Yeah, these, yeah the, the copper tones exactly. are very reminiscent of the age that this is taking place in. The copper tones and the palette, the rusty copper theater palette gives this idea that this is taking place very long ago. Mm-hmm. There's almost no movie I've ever seen where I can't point to at least one shot or one, one something in terms of 
like where the camera's placed or something not seeming right because my brain is just so nitpicky with those things. It's like, oh, there's a little moment of shaky cam or anything. But this movie, for three hours, I am completely 100% engaged in this world. And that is a ridiculous testament, if you know me. Agreed, especially for a three-hour film. For a three-hour film. not At no point was I like, that looks weird. Mm-hmm. No, agreed. The costume... I mean, I'd probably say the only thing I would say was a little weird is accents. There's a lot of variation. I like uh, Mozart has an American accent. Yeah, there's yeah. a there's a reason for that. The director <laughs> told people to just go with their natural accents because he wanted them to focus on the performance and yeah. not not the accent. And it really doesn't matter. It doesn't. Because, because the tone of the movie is not trying to be a one-to-one representation. As much as it is in terms of visuals and the feel of the movie, like we talk about with the lighting, it is still, it still has this DNA of like a cheeky comedy to it to where those things, although they exist, they don't matter. Like it doesn't matter that people have different accents because the movie has that like sort of wry, wry tone to it. You know what hey, I mean? If, Absolutely. If Gladiator can get away with casting an Aussie playing a Spaniard with a British accent who lives in Rome, <laughs> then Amadeus can work with. That's such a good point. <laughs> what was his accent in that movie? He's a was British. Not... He's like, it's just, he has a British yeah. accent. Yeah. Oh, yeah. well, that's that's white people doing any culture. You just give them a British accent. Yeah, exactly. I know. It's just, but like the funny part is it's like the, the just oh, the whole line of accents right there know, is so insane. great. Right. A Spaniard living in Rome. Like that accent would be so weird. <laughs> <laughs> like that would be the weirdest accent to have to try to do. And Russell Crowe's. Australian like Aussie accent used to be pretty yeah. thick, you know. Oh yeah, fighting across the world, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> making movies, making songs. <laughs> this movie fighting is a work the world. Of, of fiction. I mean, we will say that is you know, this is a, a stage play written by Peter Schaefer. Uh, Milos Forman actually saw was at opening night of the stage play and saw it for the first time and fell in love with it immediately. Of the stage play Amadeus and just fell in love with it and has wanted to re- had wanted to recreate it for a very long time when he had first seen it and and eventually uh was able to do so in a very beautiful way but you know you can tell that he had that connection to the medium to the source material very 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 strongly dude he definitely has a genuine love for this this story this tale these characters this music it definitely shines through yeah the costumes are brilliant i mean and not only are they brilliant but they're they're done in a way which is almost like representative of what having to wear those outfits in that time was like. Like every time, um, uh, every time Mozart takes off his wig, he like ruffles up his like messy red mm-hmm. hair, which is such a contrast to like the styled white hair or the pink. Sometimes, exactly, <laughs> like the infused. Like he's always wearing very strange wigs and stuff like that. Like he's constantly trying to show that he's different than everyone else. That he stands out separately from everyone else that can consider them a composer. And I think the actor, Tom Holst, does a really great job of portraying that. And they they embellish, like, on his silliness. Like, it was known Mm -hmm. that Mozart was a little bit childish, Mm -hmm. just purely based on some letters that he would write to his family, where he would use, like, Licht mein Arscht and stuff like that as, like, 
sign-offs to his family. So they're like, oh, okay, he has a bit of an immu- uh, immature sense of humor. Well, and that's really where they... Yeah, exactly. So the vulgarity, exactly. But the giggle is entirely fabricated. You know, like mm-hmm. they just had to add that little like tweak onto him. And it's just everything that's made in the story is done in such a beautiful way that means something and represents something. The fact that it's an unreliable narrator just makes it perfect sense. Like, maybe Mozart didn't have an annoying laugh. Maybe he just had a little slightly high-pitched laugh. But Salieri hates him so much that that laugh became just, like, consuming in this. So to him, it's this, like, obnoxious high-pitched giggle. (laughs) It's funny. I didn't think about the unreliable narrator aspect to it. But that's one of my favorite things in fiction. I love a good unreliable narrator. I think this is one so of the glad best representations of this. Is really like everything that could be like, well, that didn't really happen. Well, of course not, because it's not being told in a historical text. It's being told by a bitter old man in an insane asylum. I will say too, really quick about the costumes. Um, and F. Murray Abram, it is one of the best old like aged prosthetic costumes and acting i have like ever seen and this is like 1984 this is still when prosthetic old costumes looked like shit like look at winona ryder and fucking edward scissorhands at the end like look at um uh tilda swinton in fucking suspiria yeah like there's still bad examples to this day of doing that and f murray abram is amazing but the costume design for him was also perfect I was trying to think of a bad old age makeup recently to make a joke out of, but my brain failed me. I was going to be like, oh, we digitally blah, blah, age blah, people now. So That's the thing. We don't do makeup anymore. We just digitally age everyone. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's a lot different. Yeah. It's yeah. It's it, it's a movie that it's it's strange because I chose this movie because I, I wanted to talk about what it means to love the music that much and all that. But it's really a movie just, you gotta see it. It's talking about it is, is so, it's like talking about amazing opera that you had just seen. It's, there's so many beautiful elements that just need to be experienced. And, and it's just, it's such a a warm movie. And then so funny at times, which just catches you off guard. It's so fucking funny. Like just like so many funny little jokes so many silly like characters, like the big fat Italian who like the only guy who actually speaks with an Italian accent that's always sweaty. Oh yeah, I love that guy. Wait, <laughs> isn't that guy German? No, they call uh, him. No. Air. So, so a little historical context. So, the, so Joseph II was the emperor of Vienna, and at the time, Joseph II is he's a German man. He's a German emperor. That's why they have the whole con like the thing like the German opera for the German people. Mm-hmm. Vienna is in Austria. Sorry, it was Austria at this time. My, my apologies. Um, so he's the, he's the emperor of Austria. And so this is a German... So the, he calls everybody else heir. When you're part of the German royalty, you're given German royal titles. So everyone's called heir, H-E-R-R. Yeah. And they're given like uh, German positions. But all of the musical, the, the theater director, that big fat guy, Salieri, and the, um, the guy that was like advocating for Mozart in the very beginning. Uh-huh. And all four of them, like there's the two that are against and then Salieri and the guy are kind of four. Yeah. They're all Italian. And they're like his Italian, I guess, like uh, musical group because at the time only the best music came from Italy. So he like basically has hired all these Italians to be his court composers and theater 
uh, directors and stuff like that. So they're given German titles, but they're Italian men. Mm-hmm. It's easy to get <clears throat> it's easy to get a little bit confused because everyone just speaks English and often yes. in just like American accents or just because British or, you know. yeah. So like scenes that would have taken place in Italian or other scenes that would have taken place in German, it's all just in English because he just wanted the narrative to flow and not really worry about that in the same sense that nobody uses accents, <laughs> you know, that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, definitely. You would have to like subtitle things and they do like, they definitely make it clear in my opinion that you're dealing with like different people like when Salieri at the end and the Mozart are uh, finishing the Requiem together or trying to finish it together. Um, it, you know, they're, they're speaking Italian to each other. They're, they're speaking the words of the opera and, and they're saying it in Italian. They're talking about translations. So there, it's definitely acknowledged that, but it's just not focused on, which I think is to the movie's benefit. See, I always thought in that scene when they were speaking to each other, I thought they were just saying like, like forte or piano, you know, like the musical, the like Italian Latin based musical terms that we have for. Hey, piano. Yeah, like, they 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 give definitely me some were. Some over here. It means like soft, you know, mezzo piano. Exactly, uh, and then he's a, yeah, he does do that, and then they're talking about the lyrics, and he's saying, "How would you translate this?" And that's what oh, Salieri yeah, yeah, says. Oh yeah, 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 you're right. Uh, like fire and hell, or something like. Like they're talking about hell, and basically Mozart asks Salieri, "Like, do you believe this exists?" And Salieri's like. Oh yes, which I thought was such a great moment. Like the man who has destroyed this other man is telling him that hell exists, but all too well knowing that that's where he belongs. Yeah. Yeah. I like yeah. that reveal at the end too, where it's like, you think he's just at his palatial villa or something, but no, he's in an insane asylum and he's <laughs> yep. like, I uh, give you, what does he say? He's like, I am the, I apotheosis you. of of mediocrity. I, am yeah, their I represent saint. all the mediocre people. Yeah, he said, "I'll speak say? for God." He says, He's, "I'll speak for God in this moment and absolve you of your mediocrity, yeah. for I am their patron saint." And he gets wheeled away. And I I want to just mention that Salieri's love for sweets was yes. such a great little twist. Yes, because he is a chaste man. He doesn't yes. drink. He doesn't smoke. He doesn't have sex he's chased well, he wants to he wants he to bang and he we'll talk about bang. that because that's a very interesting he, scene he, but he want he wants to bang that opera singer yes and he does that little thing where he's like about to bang mozart's wife and then decides not to well because he realizes that mozart he had had her the creature had had her that's what he yeah. says well he, at that time in early on in the movie too he hasn't quite like totally subscribed to this like I'm gonna destroy Mozart it was more like that was just his first like lashback at Mozart it was very petty and like childish and I think he realizes that and that he's now just taking advantage of a young girl and that's why he sends her away the cool thing about him too is that he doesn't hate he hates everything about Mozart except for his music and that's what makes him hate him even more he knows that it is beautiful like one of the best yeah one of the best scenes is when he first meets Mozart or he first sees the musical score like for the party that is going on. Mm-hmm. Like they're playing Mozart's music. So he's looking at the musical score and you hear the different instruments in his head as he speaks each line of music. And it like all comes together as like this beautiful Mozart piece. And he's like, this is like angelic, 
you know dude like, the moments the moments where the film does that are prob- probably my favorite moments There's my favorite one. scene in the movie um, is when he looks over mozart's work for the first time that the wife gets him and he's like going through it and he's like oh okay this is the voice of god he's like flipping through it <laughs> yeah. there's also the scene at the end where he's transcribing um, the funeral dirge for Mozart mm-hmm. and Mozart's telling him all these little things to put in there and as he puts it in there it's like no no the the, the violins come in here you hear that as the audience and it's so cool I know so it's cool. amazing it's so, so unique it's so unique and like and there's some great the whole thing with the Requiem is a very interesting because I probably think that's the biggest divergence the two biggest divergence from like Mozart's life are one he didn't have that many enemies he wasn't constant he said he did but there's no corroborating evidence most composers at this time were just too focused on their own careers to really give a shit about Mozart and the other is that the Requiem was was commissioned anonymously actually it was commissioned by a stranger but it was commissioned by um uh like an amateur composer who wanted to pass off the work as his own for his wife's funeral that's the actual and instead it's Salieri wanting to overwork Mozart to the point of dying of exhaustion essentially so they that's the biggest deviation and the uh, Requiem was finished by a friend of Mozart not Salieri ah. but but the but the way they do it like I say this and usually when I say these historical like juxtapositions it's because I'm like well they didn't do this right that doesn't matter. I'm just giving context to the people who may be interested in that kind of thing. Like, hey, how does the movie deviate? What they do in the film is utterly brilliant and heart-wrenching and gorgeous and just perfect. It it yeah. doesn't take away that it's not historically accurate. It actually adds to the narrative and makes it so much more full and vibrant and uh, it's just it's just gorgeous. I think Jeff likes this movie. I think we like this movie, guys. I just love passion. I love deep passion. When you hear Tom Holst as Mozart com- trying to convince Joseph II to let him do the marriage of Figaro is such vulgar. a passionate speech. It's so full of just desperation and 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 he's you can see his eyes darting around thinking about every little like thing he could possibly do to convince the king or the emperor and it's it's so reminiscent of somebody who's truly in love with what they do and that will never get tiring to look at that that carries over there's also something i wanted to point out and discuss a little bit because this film is incredibly human in a very intense way because the element of jealousy and the element of looking at somebody who does what you want to do and you feel like is your purpose to do and does it better and does it seemingly without any effort (laughs) is maddening. Like we've all felt this unless you're like a saint or something. We've all felt this level of jealousy, this level of like feeling like you're not good enough kind of thing. I think that's, I've never felt that. And that's, that's something. Oh, okay. I'm just kidding. Alex never (laughs) felt that. But, but as we, as we established last time, he's the main character in this story. Yeah, exactly. Of this world. Alex is the main character in reality. I'm just impervious. He's the main character of our reality. He's impervious. Low int. But it's like, it's like, dude, we have all felt like Salieri is my point. And. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) And I had a. Yeah, totally. No, yeah, keep going. Oh, sorry. I just I he he captures that that feeling when you're when you're 
wanting to be the best version of whatever your art is. And you see people who are seemingly either younger and better or just better. And it's almost sometimes difficult to watch. And that is why Salieri is such an interesting character because he subjects himself to that on purpose. As if he, as if a bit of Mozart's brilliance could rub off on him. He goes to every performance, no matter if it's in a vaudeville stage or a grand hall. And he watches every performance and, and looks at it and just in awe and majesty. And that takes such a different type of soul. Like when I'm passionate about something that I'm new at, I find it very hard to talk or look at people or watch videos of people who are amazing at it or and younger than me. That's just my own ego and insecurity. I can do it, but I feel bad. Salieri just... He just doesn't. He just sees the brilliance and tries to capture it. It's it's this beautiful, almost um, like pushing the rock up the mountain type thing. There's a yeah. There's a weird dichotomy there because it's basically. I mean, you can see it within the film that Salieri is the one above all others who sees the absolute brilliance of Mozart, and yet is still and because of that, almost is his greatest enemy. It's a very interesting dichotomy. And simultaneous to looking at somebody who is able to do all the things you want to do effortlessly, I was thinking about the fact that we see people whose lives seem to be effortless and like there's almost an animosity there. Like Jeff and I, I know we feel that we have a friend who life is very easy for him and we get on him about it sometimes. And I saw that in there as well, where it's like, how is everything just like work for you all the time? It's crazy. It's like, here I am, you know, depressed and whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah, I definitely understand what you mean. And it's in, it's almost shown clearly in the scene where Salieri is trying to sabotage Mozart's performance by saying, oh, there's a ballet in it. And at the time, Joseph II had banned ballet purely because he didn't like it. And this is one of the reasons why people considered him a despot, is that he blurred his preferences with political act. There was no reason for him to censor ballet. He just didn't like it. He also didn't like serious operas. He only liked comedy operas, which is why in the beginning we see very lighthearted operas. He didn't like things like Don Giovanni. He didn't like black operas. So he just banned both of those because he didn't like them. So they try to sabotage it, and then... He almost shoots him. Salieri almost shoots himself in the foot because he tries to sabotage it. Then all of a sudden, the emperor decides to show up and goes, "The fuck is this?" And they're like, "Oh, well, we had to get rid of the ballet. It's your law." Yeah. And he's like, "Yeah, but is it modern?" Eh. And it, it's kind of a little bit of a take on like, it's a slight. This movie's not political, but it gives little like winks at oh, the, the current. I love the time little period. wink to Marie Antoinette. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so. For context, The Merchant of Figaro was banned because it uh, in Germany, uh, in Austria, because it it was it, it's considered it's not proven, but it's considered to be one of the catalysts of uh, the uprising of the French peasantry because um, they it kind of it, it created a divide in the class system, and so yeah, there's a great nod that Joseph says, "My cousin Marie Antoinette is is afraid of her own people." It's like, <laughs> oh, you know where that goes. <laughs> Yeah, if you know anything about history, you know where that goes. I was going to say, it's not It's not like... So, it's lampooning, this film, but 
going back way back to your point jeff about like the positivity and the radiance of passion it's not so lampooning and sarcastic that it turns like negative or uh, not narcissistic excuse me but pessimistic it still retains like it, a jovial nature about it it's a very loving film down to the last yeah and that's that's where the moment when Salieri is in the room with Mozart after he brings him home when Mozart collapses I think that is one of the best human moments in the film and maybe the best because you can see that beneath the childlike veneer of Mozart and all of his like pompous bullshittery and ego, there is like a legitimate human who values friendship mm-hmm. and values values the fact that somebody values him. And Salieri just maybe he sees it, but he's still he's just so blinded by his jealousy and his plot to undo Mozart that it doesn't seep into him. Yeah, it but, doesn't yeah, it doesn't take hold, but he definitely acknowledges but, the moment. Yeah, but you can see that if he if he had just gone to Mozart as a human from the off and like been open in his communication and just like come at it, like I said earlier, from a place of love, it could have been a very different story and a much, you know, much more fulfilling one for both of these people. Because with in in giving in to this jealousy and greed so completely you ruined both your lives that's all that happens when you do that so i have a trivia question then for both of you do you think that salieri as an old man killed himself because he was still so angry from what god hadn't given him or do you think that he was guilty for what he had done in the context of the movie or in um actual life well basically what based on what jesse was just saying you know like do you think that he thought that too and was like damn maybe i should have been friends with this guy like maybe that would have led to success well does his does doesn't his suicide attempt lead to his incarceration in the mental hospital yes in the mental institute so oh yes you're saying his attempted suicide. so when he does that but then at the end too when he says i'm the patron saint of mediocrities like yeah he says it a little tongue-in-cheek like but it's also like okay, do you accept that this is your life and this is what has been done to you? Or are you just still so angry that life didn't go your way? Like, he doesn't disparage Mozart or anything at that time. He's, like, making fun of the priest, you know? Yeah. Um, Yeah, I don't know. It's an interesting question. I think there definitely is an element of accept the fact (laughs) going on there. He's accepted the fact of his mediocrity and that Mozart will live on through his compositions and Salieri won't. No, I, I love that that question. I would I would definitely I would say that suicide is rock bottom. It is it is the is as low as you can go. Mm-hmm. And I think that when you finally ex, like when you finally come to that moment, there's a break in your mind. And since he did survive and now he is this world famous musician who is languishing away in a stone cell in a, in a place full of absolutely insane. I mean, you see the, the state of this asylum when uh, in the beginning of the movie, it's not a, uh, it's not a nice place. Mm-hmm. It's just a bunch of naked, crazy people and people beating them with sticks and like <laughs> switches. 
Um, I you think know, I was about to say it's not a hotel in Miami, but then you said naked, crazy people, and I was like, oh, maybe <laughs> it is. Yeah, maybe it is a hotel in Miami, beating each other with switches. Um, maybe not that part, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I think there's just a level of ironic acceptance. I think that Salieri is... Because every time it clips back to him, when he's telling the story, except in a few serious points, he's very much smiling. Oh, yeah. The oh, whole yes. time. He has this kind of lighthearted aspect when he's telling the story. Like, oh, my God, can you believe what I did? Yes. I just totally, like, just destroyed the life of one of the greatest <laughs> musicians. Can you believe my... I'm such a knucklehead. Oh, silly me. Like, he had this total lightheartedness when he's talking about it. So I think he's come to accept the irony that this man who was the court composer for an emperor is now this just a hollow man in a wheelchair totally forgotten so what's your answer to alex's question then jeff i'm still not sure like well my question is like i i think he when he was talking to the priest he's accepting his his lot his role in the world he goes i am the patron saint of mediocrity but do you think he feels bad about what he did to mozart well, obviously, he tried to kill himself, and he says he's he's languishing in the very beginning of the movie, like Mozart. I murdered you. I forgive me, forgive me. I've murdered you. Like it's yeah. pretty clear. I mean, okay, okay. Yeah, I was more viewing the question as as by the end of the movie, has does he still is he accepted of his role in the world, and does mm. he still think of himself as this larger than life character that deserves all to be able to speak God's word? And I would say no. I'd no. say he's accepted this irony he fucking, that he lives in. I mean, by his own logic, he basically murdered the voice of God. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I think. Exactly. I think it's a blend of two the two things, kind of like what you were saying, Jeff. Where I agree. I think it's both. He's like accepted. That he's like, no, I've accepted that I'm going to be a bitter and angry fuck for the rest of my life. And I'm going to make fun of you right now, priest, because you're in the throes of still kind of youthfulness, right? The priest isn't a young boy or anything, but it's like, you still have this shining example for God. And he's like, I'll let you figure it out on your own, what happened. and Or like what God does to, to people, and I'm just going to be bitter and angry about it. And I'm going to accept not only that I'm mediocre, but that I'm pissed about it still. <laughs> like, I I think that, I don't know. I, I don't have any negative feelings, I would say, towards someone like Salieri. I don't think you're supposed to. Yeah, exactly. The film does very well in, in painting him as a very, like, complex figure, you know? But he wasn't, like, the villain, I guess it was more like a, I was more pissed at Mozart's dad a lot of the time. You know, I was like, you son of a bitch. (laughs) Like, yeah. Mozart's dad is an interesting element because throughout the film, because it is from Salieri's perspective, you think that everything is effortless for Mozart. And then Mozart like, isn't drawing on anything to make all of this. But I think it is the figure of his father where you begin to see that there is a depth within the Mozart character. The strife within his life and that familial element is something he draws upon to create. Would you guys agree with that? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. It's like, his father was a, is a huge creative influence for him and a huge reason why he acts out in the way he does. Lots of pressure, expectation. You know, He basically carded him around Europe as the child prodigy of music for... Yeah, his whole childhood. Like it, it, Mozart was never able to be a normal child, so it makes sense that he carried on some of his juvenile traits into 
adolescence and young adulthood. And I want to stress that I use the word like instead of youthfulness with Mozart, I used childishness, but not in like the ne not in the negative connotation that that word has. I it feeds into his genius of music, obviously, right? It's like he's not confined by the old traditional ways or classical traditions of music. So he can make this stuff that is just gorgeous and beautiful and revolutionary. I like that they didn't make him like dark or damaged or crazy, but they made him more of like a child. But then when his father comes in, it gets more solemn and a little more serious. You're like, oh, okay, you you're like a kid of immense pressure and in a childhood where your expectations were just through the roof. Yeah, he he does throw temper tantrums. Yeah. I read that Tom Holse, Holche, Holse? I, I said Holse. Holse, we'll just go with Holse. Yeah. I'm not sure. He studied videos of like, I can't remember who, but some famous sports figure at the time John throwing McEnroe. some temper tantrum. Who was it? John McEnroe, the tennis player, who is well that known. That makes okay. so like, perfect yeah, sense. Like, just John fits. McEnroe was such a fucking baby. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so he studied that in order to like do the, the temper tantrums. It makes so he much also, sense. He also, I love this factoid about Tom Hulse, and it, it made me think about what one of the cool things about acting that you don't think about is he spent six hours a day for six months before the film practicing piano. Like he learned, he learned to play all of this immaculately. Like that's so cool. That's like that that's, so, it's not just cool. I mean, that's ridiculous. That's your job. Like your job is to like learn this amazing skill amazingly. Acquire skills. You know what I mean? <laughs> that's not like also, like, can we take a second? That's not like learning like a simple, you're learning fucking Mozart. I mean, arguably, they don't talk about it much in the movie, but Mozart is a pianist. Like, that's what he's... I mean, he's a famous composer, and, 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 and opera is the focus. But when you study Mozart in classical music, like, you start as Mozart the pianist. And that is what he is. Like, that's, that's insane to just learn that in six months. As far as big composers go, too, I think that the piano was, like, the standard instrument that you would start with, right? That you would... Because you were able to play a huge harpsichord range. yeah exactly a type of keyboard would be like the the standard instrument that you would compose music on and then you could write other lines and pieces for like violin woodwinds drums yes things uh, like that yes um piano is very much a baseline instrument yeah it's it shares the same signature as bass um they should they both can well it can be bass or treble it can go back and forth exactly but it, 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 it can be on the bass register, which is very unique for instruments. And uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's a wholly diverse instrument that kind of is the foundation of this type of music. You are definitely correct. Yeah, so they used it as like the baseline for the compositions in terms of a baseline in, in multiple ways of the word, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is that correct? Yeah. Yep. Ba-dum-ts. <laughs> ba <-dums>. <laughs> oh, great, I'm great sure fun. I'm sure I could have made that funny, but I really, really didn't. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. Yeah. I think I think it's important just also just point out real quick, going back to the idea of his father is Mozart is a man that's in pain. And that is something to I think that if you keep in your mind while you're watching the film, it makes him make so much more sense that he is trying his best to just win approval from people. Take uh, take mention of 
when he's trying to convince um, them to do the wedding of Figaro, he's like, no, there's nothing offensive. I've taken out all the offensive stuff. Like, there's, it's just going to be a fun little thing. And they even call him, they're like, they're like, you're innocent, Mozart. And it's such a childlike thing for him to think. Like, oh, I just took out all the bad stuff. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, like, you don't understand how, like, political, int- like, how political complexities work. You you're almost have the mind of a child. And then when anytime someone tells him, or he always asks, did I do good? Did you like it? Mm-hmm. D- do you like my work? Mm-hmm. He's very looking for that fatherly uh, affection. And when Aunt Salieri, somebody that Mozart respects to a degree, he does make fun of him a lot. Not in front of him. He does respect him. And so he to hear at the end that when Salieri says, you are by far the greatest composer that has ever been. Mm-hmm. You can see how much that meant to Mozart, and that was such a powerful moment. There's a commentary here as well on genius that I think warrants at least pointing out in that often the people that we think are effortless geniuses hide a really dark depression to them. I think about Robin Williams. Yes, I thought about absolutely. Robin Williams when you were just talking right there where it's like the most effortlessly funny guy who could make anyone in the world just die laughing just on the movie set. You know, just there was an the anecdote cuff. about yeah. him. Yeah. Just when he felt everyone's energies flagging, he would just do like 20 minutes of off the cuff stand up and just like joking about whatever comes to his mind. And by the end of it, everybody's ready to go for another eight hours. They're just so enlivened. But as we know now, Robin had, severe severe depression issues and also just medical issues i mean he knew that there was well a that's possibility. at the end yeah yeah but yeah. and he even knew that that was a possibility in his life it's always interesting to see like the prodigies or the talents that we've encountered through life and sometimes you always wonder you know like did you use this as a tool for survival is that why you're so good at this or do you genuinely just like or you just good at it and you like it, you know? And Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah, it's hard to... I was thinking along the lines of, like, some athletes as well. Like, you know, like yeah. kids who grew up in very, very poor rural America and they went off to play sports like baseball, football, or basketball where it's like, are you just really good at this? Because, like, it was literally, like, your lifesaver that was thrown out to you in like a very tumultuous world and you just grabbed onto it like because if that is the case good on you for being great and talented but if you you know it's like i'm sorry that like you've been compressed into this this individual i'm not saying that they don't enjoy it or anything like that and i'm not saying that this is even the case for the majority of talented people i just mean in mozart's case and in robin williams case and other people, like artists especially, like you said, it can be kind of subversive or like a veil of some type, you know? It's exhausting. It's energizing too. Like Mozart didn't build buildings. He wasn't a blue collar worker, you know, where he like had to lay brick every single day. It took a very emotional and exhaustive role on him or like physical toll, excuse me, on him. Yeah, I mean, it's clearly illustrated. I mean, Salieri kills Mozart inadvertently through exhaustion of making music yep he knows he's desperate for money exactly he knows he'll do anything for it so he puts a near impossible task to write this requiem in the amount of time whilst also still trying to like keep himself up as a known performer 
And so it's like, I mean, the plan at the end was near flawless. Oh, it was Salieri was like, if you're going to try and play a long con on someone and you're willing to like be as two faced as you want, like good on you, man. Like you were about to get him. You were about to get him and like he was going to die. You were going to take credit for writing this beautiful requiem to one of the greatest musicians you had ever befriended. And people would remember your name, you know, as the like curator and caretaker of Mozart's legacy. And instead, his, you know, his wife, Stanzi, comes home and fucking is like, get out of here. I'm taking get this out. music back. And, like, you can see the look on Salieri's face almost just like, he, like, can't believe what's happening. Yeah, it was his, it's almost like that is his last lifeline. Yeah, and he's like, all right. Become legendary. Fuck you, God. We're done. Like, yep. I, I'm just going to be a silly, crazy old man for the rest of my life, like, and be bitter as fuck about it, like. He's almost punch drunk at the end, right? Just like, yeah. I all I can do is laugh. I can't even wail or lament about my situation anymore. Yeah, no, he's totally resigned to the fact that he, in in his best effort to be to be remembered, he only achieved <laughs> being forgotten. I know. <laughs> and that's pretty it. sad. It is sad. The only like, the only reason we know about him is because of this stage play. He was totally forgotten for the entirety of the 18th, uh, for the 19th and 20th centuries. Nobody fucking knew who his name was. It wasn't until Amadeus came. Um, I wanted to jump back to, to something Alex was talking about real quick about the role of an artist and like why you, why you do the things that you do or like what that is, whether it's a lifeline or not. And I, can o- I can't really speak for other people. I can only speak to my small role in this world I'm, I'm not the protagonist like alex <laughs> but um the things that i that i find beautiful and the things that i focus on whether it's writing or doing this or the music that i love it it is it is because it saves my life you know what i mean and i'm not some great artist maybe i will be someday but probably not but i think my point here is that it is like I think a lot of people who do gravitate towards art and creation and think about these things a lot and make it the focal point of their life do so because like life is really hard. You know, like I've always found life pretty fucking hard. I mean, if you look at my life from many perspectives, I'm sure it doesn't look difficult. Like I've grown up middle class in California or whatever, but I've always been depressed. And, you know, I've had a hard time dealing with what I consider this reality. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Like the way we treat each other and the planet and everything. Not to get super heavy, <laughs> but it's like, <laughs> it's like that's the reason I gravitate towards the things I find beautiful and why I focus on them so much. It's because if I didn't, I don't know how I would live, you know? Well, absolutely. I mean, art is the constant pulsating representation of our struggle to understand this reality i mean if it was all there if it was just there in front of us and we knew what everything was and what our place was and what we were meant to do then i don't think art would be what it is it might be something different but we created this medium to understand the incomprehensible to to give word and image to things that are beyond just normal articulation yeah it's our way of finding beauty and it's it's so it has to almost come from some level of pain sometimes it doesn't always 
It doesn't always. That's very like I don't say that every artist is a tortured artist, but a lot of the times it's almost a great catalyst to use your depression and use your pain. I think most great art is wrought from some kind of suffering for sure. Not, I, not, I would definitely say a good percentage. I'm not going to say pure suffering, but it's definitely in there because if you don't have a little bit of darkness, I, I had a professor who, who liked to say, put a crow in it, you know, <laughs> which I, I fucking love that. Statement. Such an amazing, st- like just statement. Yeah. It makes it's so, like, that's cool. Says so much, but you got to put a crow in it. I like had another professor who, it might've been the same one. Actually, she talked about how, her daughter would draw these amazing paintings of ballerinas, but what it's missing, what what would delineate it as art from kitsch, it's like if you just put a tiny little bit of blood on one of the ballerina's shoes, mm-hmm. bam, there's your crow. That speaks to all of the efforts and the suffering you have to do to 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 do something like that. You know, it imbues it with a reality that is non-disnified you know there's a there's a very fine line between what is true and what is kitsch and often it's just you got to put a crow in it man because life has a fucking crow in it it's scary and disconcerting as well when you're dealing in the arenas of inherent value is so highly prized and going back to the idea of like athletics and music and art and things like that it's like we don't no one's being like you know this guy was the most genius welder no offense to welders or people who work blue collar jobs i'm just saying like you don't have biopics made about the best bricklayer of all time in san diego right like mm-hmm. there there's something different about being able to be like oh well you can learn bricklaying through an apprenticeship and you can you know go every single day and learn how to be a blue collar worker that's really specialized and really good at what they do. But it's different when you're in the realms of music or painting or writing or things like that. Or filmmaking. Exactly. It's like you are, you can do all the right things and still suck. Salieri was a gifted musician and composer, right? But in Mozart's case, like, they both deal in this arena of just expectation and inherent talent. You are good at this because of who you are, like biologically in your DNA. This is why you're good at this, you know? So it's, it's hard to reckon with that. There's something else though. There's an X factor because you can be, you can be really great at something technically but still not have the element of soul that pushes it over um i believe it was oh, i can't remember the artist's name led the zeppelin. writer oh sorry led zeppelin <laughs> no um oh what did they call it come back to me <laughs> okay well it's just i just i i want to ask you alex um the this idea that you're touching on would you say that Basically, the movie is explaining that very idea in Salieri asking to be the voice of God and Mozart actually being that voice of God. And then that I think that's almost like a small allegory to the to the 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 viewer and the artist where there's something there that the artist is touching that you can't touch. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's revered. That's why it's respected is because this person 
is saying something that you understand, just like perfect example is what Jesse just said with adding the blood to the, to the shoe. It's like we all immediately understood what that meant. Jesse didn't need to say yeah. because of her sac- – you didn't need to say any of that. It's all there mm-hmm. in the image. And I think that right there is the crux of what we're talking about is the artist is able to say the unsayable and we all understand it universally. Mm-hmm. We all go, boom. That is a perfect segue to me figuring out what I was talking about. All right. Okay. So Frederica Lorca had this idea of something called duende. And duende is one of my favorite ideas in the world. Mm-hmm. And he frames it, or it's framed in a way where it's like a woman in a bar does a flamenco dance to, and everyone's watching. And she's totally perfect nothing wrong with her performance like absolutely technically like i said perfect and people just give a mild little applause but then a woman goes up there another woman and does the same thing and even though it's not technically perfect she's stomping her feet and slapping her hands and like there's just this soul to it like duende is like soul and even though it's not technical perfection the soul carries over to the point where everyone stands up and cheers. And that's duende, duende. It's this X factor that makes an artist like go over the top. Now, obviously Mozart had both. He was technically perfect, but I don't know. I think duende has a crow in it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yes, definitely. Well, he's a perfect artist, but he was not a perfect man. No, not a perfect man. I think that's, I think that's really, yes, exactly. Well, I, I think that's the point is like, Salieri was like, the only way to become a man like Mozart is to be chaste and respectful of God and beseech God. And and to recognize that that's not the case, I mean, totally crushes his faith to the point where he burns a crucifix. Now, today we go, oh, he's burning the crucifix. In In that time, to burn the crucifix, I mean, Salieri could have gone to jail for like his whole life. Like defacing a crucifix is, is a is a high crime. You still can in Poland. <laughs> really? You can go to jail in Poland for offending religious sentiment. Interesting. I didn't Dude, know the that. band Behemoth is on trial like all the time. <laughs> the old Holy Roman Empire. Shout out yeah. to Behemoth. They're fucking awesome. <laughs> They're one of the best. But yeah, I think it's yeah, I think I think we're talking about like that kind of that same idea. This uh this this disconnect, this loss of this entire image that you had of yourself and what it needed to be to be successful and to realize, well, it actually doesn't matter. It's just an intangible God-given talent that I will never have. Fuck. It's so strange. It's also strange that you ever, I'm sure you meet these people who are like comfortable in their reality. They're like, yeah, this is what the world is and this is what I do. And I'm satisfied with that. It's so crazy to me. It seems nice. Uh, yeah, definitely seems nice. But <laughs> seems like it'd be nice. Yeah, I mean, at the same time, I do enjoy like close reading art and stuff like that. It's, it's quite. Oh enjoyable. yeah, I would not have the mind or soul that I do if I didn't like struggle. You know. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I I, I honestly think this movie is just a perfect representation of the pain that art can inflict on people. Just unbeknownst to them unbeknownst to anyone else like it's almost like everyone else who's not Salieri or Mozart 
doesn't understand the gravity of the movie. No, it's all in them. It's 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 like everyone else just views music. Even the theater director, even the people who are directly involved in the music of the Empire, take it with such a political edge. The theater director is always talking about like how the people will respond and how this is a political thing. And, and it seems like Salieri and Mozart are the only two people that fucking get it. That are just like no, like strip all that bullshit away. It's about just love it's about the passion and and mozart says that it's about love and he's like oh we don't have love here in italy we know nothing of love <laughs> us italians <laughs> yeah it's such a silly little line um yeah I, I don't know i just think that this movie is such a great representation of that of, of the struggling artist and how much pain that can cause everyone around you yeah it's a it's a fantastically human multi-layered often comedic often very dramatic but just incredibly touching movie it's ridiculously lavish beautiful to look at incredibly compelling to listen to fantastic performances Mm -hmm. i mean i i don't have a single negative thing to say about it yeah it's it's like i think uh roger ebert called it a risk for milos foreman to make i'm going with the milos pronunciation by the way but uh, well, none of the big studios wanted to touch it. Yeah, so because it's like you want to you want to make a three hour movie about classical yeah. music. Like we're not gonna fund that shit. And it ended up, it's extremely profitable. I think it made like a close to ten times what the budget was, or not ten times. Excuse me, it made tens of millions over the budget. I know. Let me that. see here. Budget budget was eighteen million. Gross worldwide was 52. I'm sure it's just gone up from there with wow. sales and stuff like that. Also like 19, like, you know, 1984, mm-hmm. even in that era of like the years following when it's being seen, like even fuck dude, 51 million. Yeah. That's bucks good. Over in the eighties, over 18, you make $30 million on a movie, you know? Yeah. That's yeah. pretty good for an eighties movie. That's not like ET or something. You exactly. know what I mean? That's not like Spielberg. It's three yeah. hour long extravaganza um but deep dive into classical it's a yeah that's why i said i think it's i I just think it's legendary i think it's one of the greatest movies ever made um i would it it would be one of the first movies i would choose outside of the classic golden era of hollywood that i would start putting up as like one of the contenders for just it's just pure entertainment like all around i don't know i don't know how to it, it gives me the feeling of when i used to be in concerts or plays when i was a child like the night of driving to like the school after hours and seeing your friends that were also participating and it being like i'm in backstage i see how all of the stuff is working and then even when i go and see theater stuff which is extremely rare but i would go and pay lots of money to see amadeus if they were doing it on stage again like somewhere in New York or something like that. There they are. Oh, actually, okay. I believe it's been playing in LA some sometime since. You actually might be able to see it. Oh. You want to go into a, a nice COVID hotspot? Yeah, see, that's the, thing. that's the There's thing. a theater group that uh, when I was doing research on this, I uh, one of the theater groups that is puts on Amadeus every year. They do a three three day event where they put on Amadeus for three days. Um, where they were talking about their analysis of the movie, and so that's where I got that from. You know, it's also it's also a really good thing that this wasn't picked up by a major studio because 
they would have they would have hamstringed it so hard. Like the next movie we're talking about, we're gonna be talking about Dune, the original one, to get ready for um Denis Villeneuve's Dune, which we're excited for. But like that movie is an interesting can of worms that we'll get into, obviously, but one element that's interesting here is it's made around the same time, I wanna say. What year was the original Dune? Eighty four, I think. So oh, same so year? it's the exact same year. Yeah fucking perfect (laughs) okay so david lynch's cut of that movie was like around or over three hours long but because the studio had final cut and it was a major studio because it's dune they cut it down to two minutes 14 just so that they could have the maximum amount of showings per day in theaters so it's like destroying art for the sake of cynicism and money Uh uh-huh you know, and that is exactly what Amadeus did not need. And because it wasn't from a major studio, that's what it got. You know, it got to be what it needed to be. It got to luxuriate in itself and be the art that it was meant and envisioned to be. It wasn't Dune. Yep. No, I totally agree. It was allowed to breathe just like a good piece of music. Oh, that's perfect. That's a perfect capstone. Should we end it there? Yeah. Yeah. Recommendations, boys? Um, well, we recorded our last episode two days ago. Yeah, the only the, the only thing I think I watched in between besides Amadeus was an awful movie from 1992 starring Brad Pitt. It's his first starring <laughs> role. It's called uh, Johnny Suede. And it's like, it's I don't even know what this movie was trying to do. It was like just like a postmodern crap show with terrible acting, flat direction, bad writing. Nick Cave is in it, which is interesting. He's in it for like five minutes, and he makes Brad Pitt eat eat chicken that he finds on the ground. <laughs> so that's kind of weird. You uh, already want to see the movie. I don't. Uh, I don't recommend it. <laughs> it's all bad. right. Anything else, Alex? You got anything? I do not actually. Yeah. Yeah. Same. It's been a yeah pretty short from our last recording. It's, yeah. so. it's been two days, and we had to watch Amadeus in between. So <laughs> three hour epic. You know, <laughs> you're like kind of exhausted at the end. You're like, I'm gonna go take a walk and look at <laughs> look at toy lawnmowers. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Then. All right. We'll be back next week. Thank you to my co-host. Thank you, Alex Abear. Of course. Thank you, Jeff Casino. Of course. Yeah, I had a fun. And uh, we'll see you guys next time. Talk about Dune. Bye bye. Goodbye. Now our podcast is done And we have to run We know it is sad But we had so much fun Don't be bereft Jesse, Alex, and Jeff Will be back real soon The Real Weirdos We talk about movies For way too goddamn long Bam, 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 bam